What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio. It's me, Dan Evans. I'm joined again by the boy, Nathan Cush. Yep. I was going to say your boy, and then I realised I said that joke before. Did that joke before, yeah. Yeah. I was, I'm just going to keep saying it so it has, like, a weird <laughs> longevity. Yes. I think that what happens is if you say something, you know, first it's funny, then it becomes unfunny, and you keep saying it, mm. it becomes funny again. It becomes postmodern at and that point, it becomes doesn't weird. it? Yeah. Um, That's okay. what happened to me. Uh, okay. So today we're delighted to be joined by Polly Manning. Polly is a student, an activist, and a writer. Polly's basically just won. Professional fireman person. Uh, mm-hmm. She's basically, Polly has just won the 2017 Planet Young Writers Essay Competition. Story basically tells a story of why she transferred from Oxford University to Swansea University after only nine days. And in the article, she also argues about how higher education in Wales should present a progressive alternative to the cult of the Russell Group and the embedded privilege it represents. So, welcome, Polly. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, we're really chuffed to have you on. Interestingly, actually, I got an article in the same issue of Planet as you. Mm-hmm. Nice plugs. Yeah, I read that. Uh, my mum obviously got the copy and then straight away like texted me like, oh, you have to read this article by Polly Mike, it's amazing. <laughs> and I'd obviously... I'd I read wish it. I had a daughter like her. I'd read, I'd read the Plaid, um, I'd read it in a version of it in the Plaid E-Fank, yeah. um magazine. But it really was brilliant. This is probably the first parental request for, straight away for a... For guests we've we've had on mum sort of my mum insisted like get her on straight away so you you know mum guaranteed move, yeah yeah it's just the veto like get her on so but we're we're, we're really sorry just, michael sheen we're, we're, yeah we had to bump people off you know yeah. Michael, um, yeah, literally kill them not just just, yeah. just g- gave him a ring and said sorry mike um yeah so this episode we're going to talk about higher education you know polly's experience in oxbridge you know how we can sort of work towards progressive higher education in Wales. But first, do Wales this week. We did think, Nathan and I, that because we did a, we recorded an episode on Sunday and it's now only Wednesday, and we thought what could happen like in three days, but as we said on Twitter, it's just a constant parade of idiocy, Bleakness. <laughs> uh, bad news, and yeah, just, just terrible ideas. Um, but we're thinking of treating our version of Wales this week just like the, the real Welsh news is treated at the end of the proper British news. <laughs> so, and now, the news in Wales. How Arri- the budget affects Wales. Rising assembly costs is a joke, says leader of Wales' biggest council. Can we get Airbus a- chief reveals the extent of the challenge for Wales' aircraft work as Brexit looms. And a Welsh MP is beginning to make a law to automatically register everyone to vote. Well, I feel informed. Thank you for tuning in. Yeah. <laughs> but that is it. I mean, that's essentially the... Sometimes they just don't even... That concludes our hilarious parody of, uh, yeah. of how the news is presented in Wales. Take these in reverse order. A Welsh MP is bidding to make a law to automatically register and to vote. So Joe Stevens, I believe, is basically, you know, she's making a case for automatic voter registration. Well, her, her reason was that saying, like, not many people are voting or they're being represented. I was like, well, yeah, that's why they're not voting, isn't it? Because they're yeah, not yeah. represented. This is <laughs> yeah. like this circular kind of... Joe Stevens, she's Labour, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, so why, why bother? Like, Labour just kind of solidified in there. Well, what they think... Well, I think people in Labour constantly have to make noises towards, you know, improving sort of the democratic franchise in Wales, given the fact that, was it, 45% of people turned out to vote in the Assembly elections last year. So basically, most people in Wales have no, no say at all 
into the decisions that affect their lives in you know health education basically anything but compulsory voting uh, firstly why do you want to copy australia mm. in mm. anything in any yeah. aspect of, uh, of life but what compulsory voting would do without an accompanying political education campaign you'd just see exactly the current percentage of votes just magnified so you know if it's it, it, that's all that would happen it would just make pop up to 100 so the percentages would be the same but out of you know 100 um polly any it's bollocks because <laughs> the argument goes that, oh, well, if we force people to vote, then they'll be forced to inform themselves. It's never going to happen that way around. It's never going to happen that Unless way they around. are already so informed they realise voting is a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this is, I mean, mm. part of the, the, one of the main problems with this compulsory, compulsory voting is it assumes that non-voting is just basically because people either don't know or they're apathetic, mm. whereas in reality, I mean, most of the literature... That looks at non-voting and whatever, like you know, the, basically the mass withdrawal from politics is basically a lot of it is is, is rational self-interest because people mm. aren't represented by political parties for a number of reasons. Firstly, the convergence of social democratic parties into basically this conservative, centrist sort of blob, mm. sort of alienated people. But also, pol- politics is is managerial, like it's you know. Um, Decisions like look at the city region, the Cardiff city region. That's something that's happening behind closed doors. Like there's been no citizen engagement. There's no citizen input into something like that. Maybe so they um, can't vote. Politics has become technocratic. There's a book by Peter Mayer called Rule in the Void, and it's amazing. And it's just about how, first instance, it's conducted by professional politicians at a huge distance from the general public. But secondly, in terms of things like devolution and things like the city deal and like Cardiff Council, there's so many different layers of bureaucracy and things like that. That uh, yeah, And there's also such a huge input by big business because things are outsourced and privatised. So you've just got extra layers of people doing things. So what that does, it just removes accountability. So even if you wanted to complain, you wouldn't be able to anyway because you don't know who's who's providing whatever service. So, But then people died uh, for your right to vote. <laughs> yeah, that's Which true. is why everyone should vote and mm-hmm. not have a say in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing about that is that people don't understand that not voting is also is also a right. You know, it's, yeah. no, it's not. Okay, so Polly, we can uh, veto this idea. Yes. Okay. Right. We have one thrown out. Uh, um, sorry, Joe. Not really. Airbus chief reveals the extent of the challenge for Wales aircraft work as Brexit looms. Well, this is not surprising at all. Basically, Airbus is saying that they thinking of pulling out of or Broughton in North Wales because rival countries would dearly love to design and build wings. They bloody love building yeah. wings. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a Polish, and there are existing Polish wing production <laughs> facilities elsewhere in the world ready to pounce. Airbus only exports to the EU. Mm. This is all predictable stuff, isn't it? You know, like, didn't didn't yeah. a certain podcast predict it over a year ago? Yeah, I think they did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well done, Jylan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, what, what was the other... What's the new... Podcast with like Helen Lewis, it's like centrist yeah. podcast, with like the oh, new statesman. Yeah. It's worth I've seen in my life. Yeah. yeah, been listening. I no, I saw a clip of Helen Lewis talking about how coffee is a very middle class thing. That was the drink. one. That was what I saw. Yes. Coffee's been coffee just gets it now, and it's sort of the, it's right at the heart of the authenticrat uh, uh-huh. discourse, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that was the one. I, th- I think um, one of the people I was following on Twitter generally thought that, that the Helen Lewis podcast was a parody. Like you just, I did. Yeah, like this can't. This can't be real. What world am I? Because I think people, because no one wanted it to be real, and it mm. would have been a lot easier. I could have slept easier at night if things like that yeah. 
because I have get paid, probably get paid for it. If, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, nice mm-hmm. studio, and here we are producing red. No, I, vi- I saw the video, and there's just like, I, is it Jolyon London? Is that his name? Or well, yeah, Jolyon. Jolyon. I don't oh, know. It's even worse. It. Who cares? But he's just like, is it Jolyon? I don't know. It's Joyless probably, but he's just going around the streets like, I'm a funny man. Hello, what do you think of Brexit? person and they're like oh, i don't know ha isn't that funny let's put it on a podcast i know what if spotify are listening though uh we we are still waiting for you to, <laughs> to, to okay us yeah okay so basically wales is going to be screwed by uh brexit i mean mm-hmm. i i feel weird right sort of ranting about the lack of a plan for brexit because because of the polarization of the debate i can already tell that people in like labor sort of like left-wing people are sort of like assuming that i'm even if you moan about it, I think people have start the, the people have started to assume that you are like sort of a, a, a centrist moderate who just thinks mm-hmm. that the EU is the greatest thing in the world, yeah. which we all agree it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly what. I was Literally, saying. no problem there. But I mean, what I what I did think was weird is that you know how many people have been pro remain you know remainers, um, then all of a sudden you know Labour Party and Corbyn and stuff basically like solidified like a Lexit position in the co- their conference. And then almost overnight, people just adopted like this new party line, and I'm fine with that because you know I, there's good grounds to oppose the EU, but there still hasn't been a coherent plan as two thirds of the Welsh exports go to the EU. There still hasn't been a plan, as far as I can tell, to how how is the Welsh government or how is the British government going to ameliorate the disproportionate effect that Brexit is going to have on places like Wales and Scotland? Yeah. And they haven't provided that, so it's not panicky or. I feel dirty just even sort of moaning about it because it's almost, it's almost become un- it's become so uncool, hasn't it? Yeah. And obviously I am cool, so. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Basically, this is like the, you know Wales is going to be economically destroyed uh, through Brexit. Mm-hmm. Beat us to it. And last story: the rise in assembly costs is a joke, says leader of Wales' biggest council. So Hugh Thomas, who has recently been criminalising and deporting rough sleepers, and beefing with us on Twitter, has as well. got on his high horse yeah. to basically moan that. The Welsh Assembly AM has approved a 2.3 million increase in the budget for the body which manages the Senate called the Assembly Commission. The commission, which is run by a cross-party group of senior AMs, will have a budget of 56.1 million 2018-19. So the hikers divided AMs themselves. Apparently, you know, Simon Thomas has said any increase was hard to justify, but Susie Davis, who's a Tory AM, said it's this is needed to ensure effective scrutiny. This is I don't know why you picked this story, Nathan. Well, it's because it was Hugh Thomas who we were beefing with him. And but this makes I agree with him, so I feel di- even dirtier now. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we need to get a bit of like uh, kind of get a bit of grey area, don't we? There are things I think that even e- we can agree with people who criminalise homeless people and uh, you know evict people through the bedroom tax. I mean, there are, we have yeah. got some common ground. And that is... Um, Evicting people through the bedroom sex. Yeah, that, and we approve of that. Yeah. Um, I should also say while well, here that Cardiff Council once spent uh, £28,000 a year on tea and biscuit costs. So, And they also spent £9 million buying the NCP car park to free up space for the bus station, trucks. which hasn't been uh, built. So they can't really talk about being you know, profligate because they are And how much, much are councillors are on, especially at top? top brass like it you. makes me sick like all right interesting back in 1997 uh kerry evans uh rest in peace kerry evans was an amazing like marxist scholar firstly within the labor party and then like so many other people in wales made the jump to plied and then like so many other people in wales got disillusioned with plied <laughs> but kerry evans i was reading some of his work the other day and he basically when he was advocating and agitating for a welsh assembly was saying like you know 
all assembly members will just take the average wage of a Welsh citizen, you know, um, <laughs> which is a really admirable thing to aspire to. And obviously now they're... They'll walk through the streets. What they earn now is at 60,000 grand a year. Like, they earn, like, over three times the amount, the average wage in Wales, mm. which is unacceptable. Unacceptable! You know, and it doesn't really attract high... <laughs> High-caliber candidates. Yeah, but there's no correlation between the pay and the no. Yeah, and people yeah. Also, people say that all the time, don't they? Like, yeah, um, you got you got to pay the big bucks to get like the top talent. Yeah. You've got to pay the big bucks in yeah. order to get uh, basically hedge fund managers that move from industry to industry, and then being an MP or an AM is just one one simple step, and then they mm. go to the third sector or something like that. Yeah. Having said that, as soon as I become an AM, I will <laughs> some mysteriously uh, be absent for the. Uh, Campaign to yeah. lower the uh, lower the wage. Oh, what man mm. of the people, you know. Mm. Well, what uh, Sinn Fein do in Ireland, they basically take a citizen's wage and then they give the rest of their wage to the party, and that's what I would say that I was doing. Mm-hmm. But it would just be an extra story on my house. Yeah, <laughs> every day. <laughs> to my constant party, <laughs> to the party room. Polly, any thoughts on the, um, the hike in the the? This, uh, even talking about the, I understand it's bad for a Welsh podcast but even even talking about anything to do with the Welsh Assembly is just so unbelievably boring right? yeah <laughs> this is the thing isn't it I think I tried watching like Senef TV once uh, after about five respect minutes respect for trying yeah I, I know Pro- yeah, props to me but I, I was done in five minutes it's just yeah again we, I know we talk about the media deficit probably a bit too much probably overemphasise how important it is but it, it just I wouldn't know about Pay rises. I wouldn't know how much MP, how much assembly members should be paid, how much I think, you know, how much other people think they should be paid, what bodies suggest they should be paid. You know, it's just people don't know and people don't particularly care. No, and I don't know. It's, uh, okay, well, we won't talk about anything to do with the Welsh Assembly, I think, ever again. Um, no. Because it's boring. All right, so we're going to move on now to higher education. I think we'll just get Polly to talk us through yep. your story. So yes. if you just... Set yeah, the so, scene. Yeah, so yes. yeah, just talk talks through, you know, I guess in school why you applied to Oxbridge and then just what happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um I was always very bookish in school, um, kind of well read, yeah. spent my lunch times in the library, very sad. Um so yeah, that was that was kind of my my life was tied up with academics always. Um I hit kind of GCSE yeah, started thinking about, you know, uni application quite early on. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a bit too early, really. Yeah. Um, but no, and people had always kind of suggested that, you know, you're very academic, very bright, you could go far. Um, I think I did internalise that. But that was around the time I started thinking I could actually, you know, go to Oxford. I think socially the nature of myself back then was that I always felt quite isolated being someone that's very bookish into politics, into you know sociology, whatever. Um, so I think in my head I started to develop this idea that the only way I was going to kind of come into contact with like-minded people was if I went to an elite university. If I went to you know if I went to Oxford or Cambridge, be surrounded by you know geniuses, we'd all be really political and uh, we'd have a cracking time for three years. Um, so yeah, then I got to A level, um, applied, had to sit an exam. Uh, and any course at Oxford, you have to sit a written exam uh, at your school, and then the Which, results. Is that before you can apply? 
Uh, that's just after you apply. Yes, just after you apply, you get sent the details of sitting this exam. So uh, sat that, sent off. Um, they use that to uh, kind of siphon off about half of all applicants because they get so many. It's on the basis of the written exam. Exterminated. You know, yeah, half of them just, left, like, yeah, up in flames. Yeah. Um, yeah, so did the exam, then got uh, a letter to say they like wanted me to come down to Oxford to interview. Um, I should say I applied to Jesus College, which was kind of the Welsh, inverted commas, college at Oxford. Um, Jesus went there, didn't he? Huh? Jesus went there. Mm. Jesus did go there. Yes. It was actually named yeah. Jesus College before he went there as well. Wow. Yeah, because a Spanish guy. <laughs> hey, Zeus. Yeah, so G- Jesus College is like the, the Welsh. Yeah. That's like, it, yeah. so is it, it, yeah. it presented yeah. as the accessible college, I guess. Isn't it? Partly, yeah. There's, um, there's actually another college called Mansfield, which has 90% uh, state student intake this year. Um, that's probably another story for another time. But yeah, Jesus was kind of, it was the more presentable face of Oxford to me. Um, I applied to study English uh, language and literature. Um, so yeah, then start of December, I went down for my interviews. Uh, I ended up having three. Um, the process is you stay there overnight. You live in the college for those three days, you know, among all the gargoyles and the banquet hall and everything. It's very imposing, uh, really beautiful, but yeah, quite terrifying. Um, so I had three interviews. I cried in one of them. <laughs> nice tactic. Though. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. Good. I got get, the sympathy, the sympathy vote. vote. Yeah. 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 Well. I do that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you got your job, wasn't it? <laughs> all the time, not just jobs like you know um, oh, yeah. pasties. Just in the shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, discount. Yeah. <laughs> Have a pasty. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I did that. Um, yeah, and then went home for Christmas. Um, got a letter sixth of January. Uh, so that was. 2016, mm. um, saying that, yeah, I got in, they wanted to give me a place. Um, obviously, everyone was very chuffed, and I was kind of, uh, even at then, I think I started to sense that something wasn't quite right about it, but it's an offer from Oxford. You know, you can't turn it down, was always kind of the psychology of it. So, um, yeah, and then that October, I started there. Um, basically, what I go into in the article is, well, I was only there for nine days, it's the first thing to say. It's not an extended uh, period of time. Um, it was instant, the realisation that it was just an insane place. So in the article, you know, I read about the fact that first night there, we were all kind of uh, taken to a local pub to kind of socialise, meet with the other people on my course. Um, you kind of um, exchanged the standard chat, you know, what you're studying, where are you from? So the first boy I met, we were talking like that, and um, I told him, you know, I was from place kind of not far from the valleys, just over. Um, my dad lives in Estragon Lice, but at that time we were in um, Tlingadog, Carmarthenshire. Um, and he said, you know, oh, I, went, I went kind of around that area once. It seems like the kind of place you get stabbed. <laughs> uh, that was literally the first person on my course that I spoke to. Uh, that was their response. So it was quite, um, yeah, it was quite immediate. But yeah, just over the course of those nine days, it was just constant. Uh, yeah, that's the thing about Oxford is it's not hidden from view in any way. It's not, um, it is completely blatant. And that's what I think people don't realise. And then I think I go on to talk about, you know, over the course of the nine days, I started lectures about three days in. Um, in my first lecture, he, the lecturer uh, got up a... Uh, kind of extract from this novel. It was kind of trashy novel, the kind of thing like your dad would read on holiday on the beach. Um, and basically just kind of proceeded to tear into it, talk about, you know, oh, look at this shit. This is what the masses read. And, 
talking about, you know, all the rubbish metaphors and stuff and kind of, you know, getting all the uh, students kind of laugh along with him. And it was just constantly, it was just event after event after event that made me realise how isolated, how insular Oxford was. I, I just, there's so, so much to talk about it, kind of not really able to process it. I mean, we talk about accessibility as well. The like the historical nature of Oxford as an institution means that it's basically a college system for anyone that doesn't know. Um, all the buildings are like grade whatever listed buildings, so they can't build in them, they can't extend them most, for the most part. So in Jesus College, the library is on the second floor, and uh, we had the library induction on my second day there, and he was you know, showing us all around the library and talking about how great the accessibility is for disabled students. Um, bearing in mind there isn't an elevator in the college. Um, <laughs> Crawling up the stairs. Like. Yeah, like a really kind of s- slim definition of disabled. I mean, like Tourette's or something, yeah. or just, you yeah. But no, he basically went on to say, you know, yeah, we have great provisions. Um, we had a student in a wheelchair last year. If she needed any books, she'd just write me a list and send them to me, and I'd bring them down to her. Sure. So yeah. she, yeah. So That's how student... it works outside of universities as well, isn't it? Yeah. You just but... get a trebuchet and catapults disabled <laughs> people through the windows. They probably yeah. had one as well, didn't they? Yeah. Just like uh, out on the ground yeah. yeah but just like that they're the nature of how bound they are to their traditions and their architecture and their history means that that student had to sit at the bottom of the stairs and wait for somebody to bring her books so it just went on like that for days and days and days so that's um, if i can just interject there it's, yeah. it's some really interesting things there because those of us who fantasise about going to Oxford, and you know, because Nathan went to Oxford as well. I did. I'm a fellow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and is a, so, a fellow uh, All Souls uh, College, All Souls College yeah. uh, Oxford. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I, I guess you can anticipate there being, you know, snobbish people who don't understand. You know, who. who yeah. um, but what's interesting there, you said it's the almost like the literal like material environment is intimidating, yeah. and just being there amid, amidst that, mm-hmm. those spaces and places. That's something mm-hmm. that I. You know, you don't anticipate perhaps like no. just being intimidated by everything. Oh, yeah. um, oh, sorry. And then we go back um, a little bit again. I just wanted to, if you can just, because we will talk about higher education policy and how this all relates to like Wales in more depth later, but mm-hmm. we're going to sort of get you to pull back the curtain a bit now. So yeah. what happened, like what sort of questions and stuff did they ask in the interview? Was there anything in the interview that made you feel out of place or uneasy or or was it just a hard interview okay so it's quite interesting I think because on the face of it you know they were very welcoming they did all they could to make you feel comfortable Mm. whereas at the same time you are sat in the most like insane building you've ever seen in your life you know um I mean I think there are a lot of myths about the questions you'll get asked in Oxford interview um I mean because I wanted to study English it was mainly questions about you know literature what I've been reading um, Were they was, in riddle form? Yes, yeah, all of I them. So. Yes. <laughs> the novelisation of the Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Homeward Bound too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, you're you sit in one of the lecturers' offices. You're interviewed by two professors normally, or a doctor and a professor, um, and they basically grill you about what you know, what you don't know. That was all quite fine, actually. I kind yeah. of enjoyed that. Um, but there's a second interview where they, five minutes before, they give you a piece of poetry that you've never seen before. And they say, you know, look over this, and then you're going to come into the room and we're going to talk about it. 
So, you know, it's very intensive. If you're not somebody that's uh, been given the confidence even to... Um, yeah, so uh, you're given a piece of poetry, given about five, ten minutes to look over it, uh, and then you're taken into the room, and, yeah, you're basically asked to evaluate it uh, in front of two professors of English literature. Um, so, you know, obviously that's very terrifying. I think what got me is that during the interview process, you know, I was talking, we were talking to each other afterwards, saying, you know, how did you find it? And uh, so many of them were just saying, oh, well, it was kind of similar to, you know, the mock interviews I did uh, at, my, uh, at my college. Um, or, yeah, you know, it's like, it's like debating club, isn't it? You know, same, same thing. I was kind of there going, like, yeah, wow. yeah, same, yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'd never been given the opportunity at my school um, or anywhere else to be put on the spot and be comfortable you know, talking about my opinion or feeling comfortable in the belief that your opinion is right, yep. which is something that they're all very good at, private school kids. They're, they have the confidence to say what they think without going, oh, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong afterwards. Um, I'll throw in it. So, <laughs> yeah. So that, so that was the interview that I cried in. I was given a second interview the next day, did, I think. Did they mistake it and thought you were that moved by the poetry? <laughs> yeah. that it, it just oh, that's what I should have done, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I could have played that off. It was like when the like, people are interviewing as well. It's just like really a kind of road test in his own work. It was like, oh, yeah, that, that one girl cried. Yeah, yeah. And uh, publish my dog poetry now. <laughs> so yeah, that um, they gave me a second interview for the next day, which was basically a rerun of that one. And I actually did okay in it. Um, but yeah, so the interview process, it's very grueling. Um, and you're naturally, I think, going to do much better at it if you've come from a particular kind of background. And that background is, you know, debate clubs at your grammar school and that kind of thing. So it, it does set you up for a disadvantage, you know, from the very beginning. Yeah, but I mean, what is interesting, I mean, is if, if you look at Oxbridge and things like that, they, they do all the right things, they tick the right boxes. As you said, they're not going to look down the nose at you when you come in, things no. like that. They're all very nice and polite. Mm. But the problem is is the institution itself. Yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit later because as chance would have it, I've been writing a paper on this topic. <laughs> but go back again, if that's okay, earlier yeah. in the story. And I, I'm interested in how your school prepared mm. you or what was the prevailing attitude towards education in your school, mm-hmm. what was the prevailing attitude towards, you know, university in your school? Did the teachers encourage you to go to university? Did they encourage you to go to, mm-hmm. you know, Oxbridge and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, okay. So, um, obviously, uh, my school was a comprehensive uh, place <laughs> called... <laughs> <laughs> um, End of interview. <laughs> Get out. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little place called uh, Broden Evod, um, just outside Llandilo in Carmarthenshire. Um, it's, it was interesting because the actual makeup of the school, uh, economically, socially, was on kind of two halves. So you had the very kind of middle class, mostly English uh, students, um, and then you had kind of students from over in Bradaman and surrounding areas um, who were generally non-Welsh speaking or... But there basically wasn't really a culture of ever sending students to Oxford. When I first told kind of head of sixth form, you know, I was thinking about applying. He suggested Jesus College. He said, you know, that over kind of 10 years, they've sent a handful of mm-hmm. students there. But the thing that struck me was that they helped me put my application together. And then, you know, there was nothing. There weren't these kind of training classes that you get told about. Um, 
weren't any mock exams to prepare me for the written exam. I didn't have mock interviews to prepare me for the interview process at Oxford. So yeah, I really kind of had to do it by myself. And that was the experience for two other people in my year uh, applied to Oxford. And that was the experience for all of us. And, you know, those two didn't get in. And What's fascinating is that it's there's the culture of the school is clearly important, isn't it? And yeah. Because obviously certain schools do have, like... Um, a tradition of sending children to uh, pupils rather to Oxbridge yeah. and that sort of is, starts a cycle basically of mm-hmm. encouraging kids to go to Oxbridge and things like that. Yeah. I mean, did, did, did the school encourage many kids to go to university per se or was it just they did but Ox, Oxbridge wasn't, um, you know, the popular choice? Well, it was quite interesting. So I actually, in my experience in Carmarthenshire, we had um, a careers officer um, she was always quite keen to kind of discourage uh, students from taking on A-levels, you know, going to do... Uh, <laughs> Sounds really bit of career after, doesn't <laughs> yeah. she? There was that aspect, you know, so before even people were applying to university, they were being put off, you know, taking A-levels, encouraged to go and do B-techs at the college and stuff instead, which obviously, you know, is fine, but she was putting off people that actually wanted to maybe go into more academic side of things. So, yeah, we... I wouldn't say there was particularly a culture of encouraging in my sixth form anyway kids go to university it was accepted that particular kinds of student were going just going to apply anyway because you know of course they were and they all did and maybe students who you know I have friends who should have gone to university I know would have loved it who didn't you know they they went into work or you know they went home to their parents and went worked on a farm you know they just there wasn't ever that kind of prodding that some people need to take the step to go, you know, apply to university. It's really interesting you said about the careers um, officer. There's a really interesting piece of research by a, socio- a young sociologist, a young working class sociologist, I should say, co- uh, called Jess Abrahams. Mm-hmm. And it's about, it's set in Bristol and it's about the careers service. And it's really tragic because it looks at s- uh, schools which have, like partnership agreements with like Red Brick, Russell Group universities. Yeah. And because these these universities are duty-bound to widen access, mm. what they do, they basically invite all these kids along to open days or just like trips around the university, you know, mm. see all the nice old buildings when they're like 15. Mm. Yeah. And then these kids obviously get this idea in their head, oh, I'm going to go to uni. And then she looked in this study at the role of the careers advisor in these schools. And basically what the careers advisor does does is that even at the age of like 15, 16, it's basically just pissing on these kids' dreams, essentially. It's just oh, yeah. it's saying like, so these kids will come in and say, like, I want to do this. And then it's like, mm, you know, I, looking at your grades, I really don't think like universities yeah. for you. And, and so she says what they do, they'll do things like, I want to be a vet. And then they'll say, oh, well, instead of being a vet, how about you become, and it's like, you know, like the, they, they revise it so it becomes and like an animal technician or like a veterinary assistant or yeah. you know, why don't you work in a vet's office as a receptionist or mm-hmm. things like that why do you stand outside pets at home <laughs> yeah why do you stand outside <laughs> pets at home or why yeah. Do, yeah why don't you just yeah chase straight dogs or something like that yeah. but um the interesting thing about jesse abram's work is, is exactly what you just said polly is that mm. they you know, systematically certain kids are maybe in some schools diverted towards one path probably at a very young age, let's be honest, mm. and some kids are sort of marked for, oh, this isn't for you. But what's interesting about Jesse's research is that it shows, I mean, it shows how much, how what a load of bullshit this lack of aspirations thing is because yeah. if you look at, you know, because I've been 
you know, working with school pupils across Wales for the last five years, and you look at what they all want to do. All right, most of the boys want to be professional footballers. You yeah. know, most of the girls want to be pop singers. That's the sort of trend. Mm-hmm. But people, you know, the kids want a lot for themselves. You know, they've they've got ambition and they want to achieve things. Mm-hmm. But what's horrible about these, you know, the, it's, I'm not demonising careers advisors because they're just you know, the end point in the process of these mm. kids. They're, the they're very dr- end point. Their it? dreams just get sort of, you know, well, why don't you just revise your expectations yeah. downwards? But yeah. on the other hand, some kids are sort of, you know, go to go towards Oxford and Cambridge. Yeah. But what's interesting about it is you didn't have coaching or anything like that basically beforehand. Mm. And as we know from, you know, significant educational research, you know, a lot of schools do, you know, put kids in almost like holding section or whatever and then like right you are going to get into oxford and then yeah. it's sort of like interviews and interviews and interviews mm-hmm. and what's interesting, interesting when you think about going to a state school you know the experience of going to a state school and there's something that we'll talk about the different you know the, the cultural differences between private schools and state schools later is that we don't ever have this experience of debating or talking like a like an adult to an adult yeah holding your own uh having confidence there isn't a culture you know these just aren't they mm-hmm. just don't exist in state schools yeah. I mean like going up and talking in front of the class is I mean when I'm doing seminars in university you can immediately tell of the students right which one here has gone to the private schools yeah. and which one's gone to the state schools because the state school kids almost as a you know as a, as a rule of thumb mm. will hate getting up in front of the class because they haven't got the confidence yeah. but they haven't got the confidence because they haven't got the experience and so these are all these subtle cultural things aren't there that work against state school uh, pupils but when you went to Oxbridge I'm going to talk about a bit of the uh, <laughs> what should I talk about like the, the theory behind all this yeah go for it yeah okay um, I'll, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what we'll sound we'll, like you're warming up a crowd then didn't it <laughs> what's up you ready for some theory <laughs> I can hear you <laughs> um, let me hear you say Dirk <laughs> okay so the saddest things, I guess, about the essay, because it, it was it was sad, and like I said, I did oh. I did cry a lot. Um, the first thing is that you said you had you had to meet in one of your college rooms in smart dress for pre drink pre dinner drinks <laughs> with two of the professors. They laid a table full of champagne and poured us all glasses as we talked. And as I stood there, surrounded by portraits of former principals in gilt frames, the college began to feel less like a place of learning more like a mechanism to romance the egos of those who just happen to have particular fortunes in life. And then you said you have like a big dinner table <laughs> and the Latin. college chaplain is reciting a lengthy prayer in Latin. Yeah. I am um, I and shamefully you don't you don't speak Latin. I don't I'm afraid no. <laughs> Everyone looks at you. Speak well. <laughs> um I went to um my friend went to Cambridge and I attended one of those dinners and it was just like seven courses. Oh, and yeah. then at the start it was like all oh, the cutlery. Yeah, and yeah. everyone would come and serve. And the dinner wasn't very good, I will no, add. No, it wasn't. Then honestly, like one course was just a sorbet. That's not a course, is it? <laughs> or grapes. Uh, Nathan, uh, yes, they texted me, had a bad tummy because he'd eaten a whole pizza and a whole packet of biscuits after his, uh, and he'd already eaten. So maybe, I don't know if you're a reliable witness when it comes to... I'm the best witness. Yeah. Listen for the experience <laughs> I have in um, culinary adventure. But the point is, I mean, there's, as you said, there's butlers there with yep. white gloves and people were pouring wine for you. So there's almost like... So are you saying basically that you didn't do things like that in your old school? <laughs> I know, right? It's shocking. No, um, 
yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to what I was saying about how blatant it is. People don't realise, you know, they assume that, well, it must have changed somewhat, otherwise people would be, you know, writing in the streets about this. But no, it's it's just because it all happens behind college walls. Yeah. People don't know that this is actually what the culture's like. So the admissions process can be sort of democratic, essentially, and, you know, open to everyone, but it's... Mm -hmm. Well, talk us about this phenomena, you know, of people just getting, mainly working class or state school pupils, just being really, really upset mm. in Oxford. So. Yeah. Yeah, so that was one of the most shocking things. Um, I didn't even have to get to know people very well before they started telling me about their experiences at Oxford. Yeah, so one of them was uh, a guy I was talking to, and he said, you know, he's turned to substance abuse because, you know, he can't cope with the, his workload. There was another that said, you know, I'm, I just need to get through these four years and then I can leave and go have a good life you know it's worth Sounds four like years of prison s- sentence but without the fun yeah you know the idea is yeah <laughs> or, or <laughs> tattoos yeah the idea is that you know you have three four years of misery but then you know you're set for life so it's all yeah. fine and that was just something that pretty much every third year fourth year I spoke to kind of echoed in what they said um, massive drug culture as well it wasn't something <laughs> I was involved in, but like it's. Why are you winking, Polly? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and. But and do you think drugs is a coping mechanism? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, look, there's a drug culture at every university in the UK, um, <laughs> but at Oxford, it's how it seemed to me was that it felt more desperate and yeah. less pleasurable, you know. Um, so that, and also they have the means to afford it, you know. The rich students bring in a bag of coke to your. You know, in a common room, and you know that everyone gets involved, and that's just next week. Desolation live. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Excuse us, we've got really bad colds. (laughs) Uh, But what I, I mean, so you know, you basically said it became too too much. You felt too out of place, and then you left, and then you basically say that there's a staff member, yeah, who says to you, "I'm so glad you're leaving." Yeah. So that was probably the moment where I realised I was actually doing the right thing, um, that I wasn't just, you know, overreacting to a new situation. Yeah, so the college receptionist kind of took my hand as I was leaving. You know, I was in a bit of a state. This was kind of childhood dream, kind of broken before my eyes and all that. Um, it's, it's a quick lesson in those nine days, isn't it? Oh, yeah, you got yeah. you really kind of catapulted into yeah. adulthood. Oh, yeah, to be fair, I think those uh, nine days, horrible as they were, they kind of radicalised me a little bit, which is probably a good thing. But, yeah, the college receptionist kind of took my hand and she said, yeah, I'm just so glad you're leaving I have students come up to me at the end of every year who are about to graduate just in tears because they can't believe they've wasted three years of their life being miserable for you know a piece of paper and that was a college member you know a member of college staff telling you know who'd been there for years and years she's you know seen it every year so it is a it's a culture that it's not you know occasionally a working class student will feel out of place it's it's a regular yeah yeah completely okay and then you've You've gone then to Swansea? Yes. And a happy ending. Yeah, I'm on the Swans. And how is that working out? It's great. Love Swansea. Yeah, Good. it's fab. I mean, the course is amazing. I have great lecturers. I like Swansea itself as well. So yeah, it was a really good decision. Um, but again, when I first transferred there, um, something that became apparent really quickly was that 
people kind of saw it as a massive step down, like the biggest step down you can take, you know, from not just Russell Group University, but, you know, so-called best in the world to, you know, a non-Russell Group University in South Wales. You know, people just didn't really get it. Yeah, like, are you insane sort of thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, I had flatmates saying, you know, why didn't you just transfer to, like, Bristol or Exeter or something? Because, again, it's Southern English Russell Group Universities. Even within, you know, Russell Group circle, there's a hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, Cardiff University isn't seen as up there. You know, with the best of them, even though, you know, it is. Yeah, so, but even now, you know, if I start talking to my flatmates about something that's going on at Swansea or some kind of competition, they'll start talking about how, oh, yeah, but, you know, we're just Swansea. Like, it's a good university, but, you know, it's Swansea. And you're expected to know what they mean by that. And you do, because that's the attitude people have towards Swansea, but also when they're actually there. So, yeah, I mean, it has a massive impact on the self-confidence of students at these universities. Talk. Well, we're going to talk about, like, I guess, the Welsh higher education system in a minute. But yeah. I wanted to sort of, because what we said, I guess, off uh, Mike earlier was that what was striking about your essay is that there's been so many sociological studies done of um, state school or even class kids mm. in elite institutions. Your essay is basically better because it's more personal and it it gives a you know a, a real personal touch to sort of dry interviews and theory and things like that, mm. but. There are some theories which I think can help us understand what you went through and the experience of, you know, working class kids, but also, you know, middle class kids as well. Yeah. So within, I mean, luckily, I, you know, a research education, one of the main theorists that is used to understand education is a guy called Pierre Bourdieu, who's a French sociologist, and he wrote a lot on education. And he has a concept called habitus. And habitus is... Basically, what he calls is your set of dispositions that we have, and we develop these dispositions as a result of our, you know, our upbringing, basically. But that can be your family, you know, your community, you know, your friends. So habitus is basically how you are, for want of a better word. So, um, and it has like physical manifestations, and so accent is an indicator of habitus. You know, mm-hmm. um, with the way we stand, the way we walk, and he also developed an allied concept called distinction so that helps us understand so basically all Bourdieu's work is helps you understand how social class operates in day-to-day mm. basis so distinction is based on consumption patterns so it's basically things like you can tell what class someone is because of their clothes they wear mm-hmm. because of them you know what music they listen to you know what sport they like or their haircut you know he, he's got like three pages in distinction talking about like haircuts and things like that his favorite ones uh, his favorite ones <laughs> But things like, you know, interior decoration, you know, work, working class people's houses, there's mm. middle class piece, people's houses. But the other concept is the, is the field. So the field basically refers to like an area in society. So, you know, all these theories are in, interrelated. So the field would be, for example, higher education. So the university is a field. Sport would be a field. You know, different occupations would be a field. Mm. And so what he says basically is that there is a clash between certain habituses so the way you are, and a certain field. So, And the metaphor he uses, I mean, I'm sure you, you might u- even use it in your essay probably, is he basically says that people feel like a fish in water mm-hmm. or a fish out of water. So, And he uses the concept of ease. So, you know, basically all it is is that some people feel at ease in some circumstances and in some institutions, and some people feel ill at ease. And then the huge volume of literature looking at working-class students in higher education in particular has used Bourdieu and the reason it focuses on 
I guess, higher education because that's almost probably one of the most magnified clashes, you know, with mm. class students and, um, you know, a, a typically middle class institution or upper class institution in this example, like Oxbridge. And one of the other concepts he uses, which helps us understand all this is, and it is related to habitus, it's this idea of cultural capital. And cultural capital has kind of become like a mainstream concept. Mm. You know, people talk about it when they talk, think about soft skills. Cultural capital is really, when it, you're talking about education, it, this is what distinguishes both working class people from middle class people, but also private schools from state schools. Because, mm-hmm. you know, so what Bourdieu talked about was basically that there, within higher education, you know, schools and university, there's a hidden curriculum. You know, there are hidden, mm-hmm. unspoken norms. So there's formal rules of the curriculum, you know, like grades and how to behave and things like that. But there are unspoken rules of how to talk, how to negotiate your way around education that some people just in, instinctively understand because of mm-hmm. their background and some people just don't understand or some people will feel out of place. But the cultural capital is useful because, as a, like a heuristic device because in a shorthand way of looking at it would be you develop competencies that allow you to thrive in certain fields like higher education. Confidence is an obvious one, which is developed practically through things like you know, public speaking, mm-hmm. um, debates. Do you remember that the girl, Nath, when probably about the same time you and I were doing GCSEs and A-levels, she got like five A's at A-level, which was unprecedented at the time. She was from a, a comp in Newcastle, and she got she got rejected from Oxbridge. I remember this. Didn't Gordon Brown kick off about it or something? There was a huge... It, yeah. was, it was outrage, you know, um... Mm. And Oxford, I mean, she, and then I think she went to Harvard, but Oxford basically said, well, you know, she's just a bookworm. Yeah. She's not an all-rounder. And what's interesting, if you look at, you know, well, a lot of children in state schools who go to university are very academic, and academics is the main thing that the school focuses on. But if you look at some of the kids from private schools that go to Oxbridge, they have good grades and they're captain of the rugby team, and they're a mm-hmm. rower, and they can oh, yeah. sing and, and things the, like that. And their dad's friends who are from the family. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so do you think as well, like we're saying about how class reproduces itself, um, would you say like largely identity plays into it? Like, you know, you're, I identify as this class, or you know, so you can you reproduce it easier, don't you? Because it's more like, or is that is that just more cultural capital? Really? No, no, so, so basically... Or is that, um, is that that'd be more social capital, though, isn't it? Yeah, social capital would be, you know, like who you know basically whereas I guess cultural capital would be like your competencies so, like what you can yeah. do I was I was uh, speaking to my friend who um, he's basically he says that cultural capital largely is non-existent and you can trace it back to pretty much social capital mm. in a mm-hmm. sense and that it's almost like a cultural face of social capital I should point out at this point, stage that you know within Bourdieu sort of scholarship you know cultural capital is being seen as like nebulous and it doesn't you know what it what it you know it's been sort of contested and it, i mean i'm using it here as a shorthand but yeah i always got the impression it's more of a shorthand of like rather than being like oh actually it's a cultural display of social capital it's just yeah, it's yeah. but the concept I mean, ease is the interesting thing there's a couple of examples that illustrate the importance of these like you know the hidden curriculum and soft skills right one of them again is by uh, jesse abraham who's involved in this and it's uh, in bristol and it was called the paired peers project and the paired peers project was a longitudinal study of working class students and middle class students going through Russell Group universities on the one hand 
and uh, post-1992 new universities on the other hand. Mm -hmm. And what they were trying to do was look at the impact of like soft skills and capital on your life choices. And I went to a conference in Belfast. I remember looking at this, hearing the research in this project and just being like absolutely blown away by how interesting it was, but also by how tragic it was. So they traced two girls from their A-levels to the graduate employment market. One was uh, Welsh, working class, uh, from a state school in you know the valleys, um, from a school which didn't have uh, a culture of you know, sending people to university, things like that. The other was a you know, middle class student from a middle class area in the, in London, basically. The Welsh student, the working class one, got excellent A levels, got accepted to a Russell Group University, um, which I'm presuming is Bristol University, and the the privately educated girl got average A level results went to the post-1992 university, which I'm presumably was University of the West of England. Oh, I'm just like ruined the study by revealing the names, but I'm, I, I don't know if it, uh, we can just cut it out. If well, if anyone was in the middle of reading it, I thought, I'll take a break and listen yeah. to this podcast. Like, um, oh, God, I love <laughs> Oh, yeah, and they both did law. And the reason they chose law students was because law is a profession which is typically requires, you know, social contacts and things mm-hmm. like that. It's bigger law firms and most prestigious ones are focused around, like, London... Um, it's mm-hmm. got a high percentage of privately educated people in it. So then they, they trace these girls' experiences of universities, right? To sum it up, the working class girl in university, in, in, the, in the better university, did incredibly well in all her exams, threw herself into university, didn't socialise that much, mm-hmm. didn't take part in many clubs, things like that, because she was studying. She also didn't have much money, so she worked in a bar all throughout the summer and through term time. The middle class girl didn't study that much, but was, you know, for example, the captain of a sports team. She was a chair of another society. In the summer, she went volunteering in Africa or traveling around Thailand. They graduated, The you know, the, the working class student got a better degree than mm. the one from the less prestigious university, but, you know, the middle class, bear in mind now, the middle class student is in the less presti- prestigious university. I think she got a 2-2 and the the working class girl got uh, a first class degree. So, you know, here's the surprise. You know, and then it was like, you know, how do you think they got on in the graduate market? You know, how would you think a year later they were both doing? Is, is this rhetorical mm. or open? <laughs> well, it's both, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I'll answer half then. Um, well, so obviously I guess it'd be the, the, the uh, girl with the lower degree um, got yeah. yeah because she had social context and she yeah. had to present herself in a in a social market that the working class girl wasn't mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and the the working class girl was apparently back in uh, South Wales working, working in Summerfield or something no working I think working in a, uh, you know a, a non graduate job mm-hmm. uh, trying to find a, a training contract and it was probably an extreme example but it really people would say oh that's just you know it's who you know but it isn't you know it's not mm. as simple as who you know saying it's who you know just gets rid of all the complex issues about how you carry yourself, how easy you feel in these places, which board you sort of helps you understand. And the, mm-hmm. there was another study in America, and it was it looked at the missing the missing link in that research process, which is the hiring process in these companies. Yeah. Because you know previously you do you, you you follow students and then you check how they're getting on, but you don't see what actually went on the interview. And what they basically found in America was that elite companies basically have this unspoken bias where they 
they just say, well, we recruit people like us. Mm. And so in the interview... Is that code for white males? Well, yeah. But um, so in the interview, then they would ask them questions like, you know, what do you do in your spare time? And What's your favorite so, golf club? And some people would say, you know, I'm a, what is it, you know, what they call rowing in America, like crew. Like crew, you know, yeah. I play, you know, go like... Play lacrosse. Horse, horse riding, mm. lacrosse, things like that. And yeah. so the people go, oh, you know, he seems like a good sort. So I won't bang about that anymore. But what it does, it well, shows how... Wasn't there another quite recent example um, of this uh, Oxford student who stabbed her boyfriend but got off with being oh, charged yeah. because, yeah. you know, I don't want to put a dampen on, on a career. Yeah, yeah, that was this summer. Did it, she kill him or just stab him? No, just no, stabbed him in the leg. she took a lot of drugs and stabbed him in the leg. Uh, she wants to be a surgeon. Well, you know. <laughs> practicing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So much potential. I mean, she didn't hit a major artery. That shows some skill mm. that we cannot, you know, mm. deprive this society of. But one of, one of the interesting things about cultural capital and, you know, soft skills, or call it, call it, what, call it what you want, you know, I, mean, I know people, if, if there are any people who are into, like, Bourdieu or whatever, they'll probably... Can I interject and say, if anyone is looking to get into Bourdieu, don't go out and buy Distinction or anything. Because I was like, I was thinking of buying it for a bit, and I was like, oh, I'll just check out the PDF. Mm. It's just almost impenetrable to read. Well, Distinction's <laughs> the Bible, like, it's awesome. Any, 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 to- any topic... <laughs> That you want to this, find this out. isn't an, an introduction to dot 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 border this is like you know but you know any any thing that you want to f- find out is low class or middle class you know then you can go in there so all right that's it i'm calling dennis no don't you understand this pool is our bootstraps and it's lifting us up into the middle class dude well just accept the fact that you're white trash all right take a look at yourself you can't do backflips you don't know karate you're white trash you're white trash too dude look at those shorts are white trash do not call the shorts white trash Pick a topic and we'll... Oh, okay. I'll pick my favorite topic to okay. do with classes. Okay. Supermarkets. Okay. So it's mm-hmm. pretty obvious, isn't it? So as a, um, you know, working class people go to Little Aldi. Um, little though. Okay. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Little has been gone since the recession. Little has become middle class and Aldi is... Iceland ice and farm foods, I say, is like the lower echelons. That's mm-hmm. like criminal class. <laughs> yeah. No, but you, but you can look at... But you have, like, even if you look at the the regional dispersal of things like waitrose and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many things are indicators of class. Clothes, food. Cars. It, but, I mean, cars, it, cultural it, consumption, it, like what comedy you like, what music you listen to. It's not as, say, distinct, is it? Because you'd, in a sense, have people... I wouldn't... I don't want to use the term aspirational in, like, a maybe traditional sense, but you'd have people who'd wear clothes they're a bit more expensive because they want to portray that kind of social display or of economic or cultural display of economic capital so it's not like you know you'd have you know maybe working class people wearing quite expensive things or as, as yeah, you see the, with like mm. a certain independent london based type that they kind of fetishize a working class yeah. so despite being middle yeah. class they'll wear elisi or red adidas red yeah. St- yeah oh we all yeah. drink red stripe now yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it is. It is. It, or whatever it's called. It is. It is complex. But he looks at the middle class as the only people that aren't basically trying to be something they're not, because that's what I mean. It's that, a, but, but that's jump to the upper class, isn't and, it? But that's when. But that's when you have concepts like new money. You mm. know, so mm-hmm. oh, they're gaudy. So working class people who are trying to aspire to be socially upwardly mobile, you can tell through that the, they try to adopt the trappings of you know, the class above them, basically. But then, yeah. obviously, that class tends to sort of, ooh, these people are crude, you know, and they don't belong here sort of thing. I always um, found, like, the, quite a good indication of perhaps cult, um, class is just, you know, mainly as culture. Because I know people in work, so I describe them as culturally working class, but on about 50K a year. Yeah, well, I mean, Thatcher, mm. Thatcherism is problematic in, in that 
sort of the homeowner democracy in the UK and you're allowing people to buy their council houses, yeah, you do have a huge, huge amount of people who are, you know, culturally working class, but, you know, materially middle class. But but what's interesting is, is that in the British class survey they did, was it 2015 or something like that, that by Mike Savage and things like that? Yeah, he's was, got a good book on social class. I, I do recommend. Yeah, brilliant. But they use cultural intake as an indicator of class. You know, like, would you go to... Theatre, the, the cinema. The opera, yeah. or cinema, things like that. Um, do you know people who X, Y, and Z? But anyway, we won't get... The, the point is that these... The point is that these are the things which... The unspoken rules which determine how comfortable you feel in certain places and mm-hmm. how uncomfortable you feel in certain places. But what is fascinating, Polly, is that you, in the second part of the essay... You basically take down the nature of the Welsh education system and, yeah. well, aspirate, you know, how aspiration is sort of looked at and mm. experienced in Wales and amongst Welsh students. So why don't you talk us through, you know, your ideas for the Welsh education system, basically? Yeah, yeah. okay. So um, I think one of the things that came to me most out of the experience was realising since you know, doing research for this article, all that kind of thing, is that there's this kind of really persistent idea in kind of cultural commentary, but also just in in education as well, that Wales will be better off once we're sending more Welsh students to Oxbridge. That That's the way forward, is making schemes, making, you know... Uh, cultural exchange programs, whatever, to get more Welsh students into Oxbridge. That's how we solve this problem. But again, it's just that culture of deferring to a power structure that wasn't designed to fit Wales, and it never has been. And so I don't think that we actually should be trying to gain access to that network, or at least that shouldn't be the end goal. I think having Welsh universities, which are... You know, internationally celebrated, which also will have a lot of benefits that Oxbridge will never have because of the makeup of their students. I, I just think that that constant focus towards we accept the narrative that the Russell Group is superior, basically, is the problem, and, and it's not. You know, that isn't just my opinion. I I don't think it's actually. I don't think it's quantifiable fact that the Russell Group's better in any way, because, you know, how how do you define what better is in academics? It's It's about process of learning, and that tends to get forgotten along the way. I mean, reading kind of any article about higher education in Wales, you know, you'd be mistaken for thinking it's a kind of economics piece, because the language of economics, of markets, of outsourcing and everything, the qualitative experience of Welsh students is kind of forgotten about. Actually, I think that's definitely the strong point of Welsh universities as compared to, you know, say, Russell Group universities where private school kids actually don't tend to do as well as state school kids, you know? Um, There is actually a statistic that um, working-class... I mean, I will find it, but it's basically that working-class kids or those who got worse A-levels but got into good universities tend to pull ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, Once they're in universities, their grades go up and up and up because... Mm given their circumstances, their class, them getting three Cs was actually a far bigger achievement mm. than someone who's gone to a private school has been coached getting three As, yeah. you know, because it, it would have taken a lot more determination. And, you know, there's a couple of things, I, I guess, that are, are, are interesting. You talk about the Welsh attitude towards Oxbridge. 
Well, it's a continuing, let's face it, it's a continuing Welsh assumption that, you know, like, England is better. Um, and if you want to sort of get on in life, you have to leave Wales, basically, and go to an elite university, and that's not Wales. I mean, in fact, I'm working on a paper at the moment with my line manager, and we've been looking at the attitudes of kids, you know, right across Wales, and they've got what we think are post-colonial attitudes because they yeah. just say, well, I want to, we've got to leave, got to leave Wales. Mm-hmm. I've got to get out. So did you think that when you were applying? I mean, did you ever, I mean, I know you wanted to go to Oxbridge, yeah. but did you ever think, oh, I don't want to stay in Wales? Yeah, or? so you know what, was really interesting. I probably, until about only maybe four years ago, would have described myself as British, didn't particularly like living in Wales, didn't get the point of the language. I was really, you know, quite, um, I was brought up in quite an English household, even though, you know, I am Welsh. I've lived in Wales for 15 years, you know, it's my home. Um, so yeah, I was definitely of that attitude that I think, you know, if I want to be admired... If I want to, you know, I am an ambitious person. If I want to reach my full potential, I've got to, you know, get out of Wales. That was my mindset. And I know now that it's not true, but at the time it was so strong that it led me to apply to university without really doing a lot of research into what I was getting myself into. So, you know, that's how powerful the idea is. I mean, um, I remember, obviously I'm only 19, so I only left school a year and a half ago. Even then, I remember... Uh, one of our teachers, you know, asking a class of about 30 of us, you know, who thinks they're going to stay in Wales after they either leave school or graduate. I think about two people put their hands up, and I wasn't one of them. So that that's just the attitude, and that was in the bilingual stream at school. There yeah. were a lot of Welsh kids in there, but they just there's no interest in staying at all. And it's it is partly due to the material things of you know lack of employment, and everything else. But the the psychological side of it, I think, is massively underrated. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, and that yeah. had a massive impact on me for years and years. Yeah, I mean, there is this. I mean, uh, I should have printed it out and brought the stats, but in the research, I'm just make them up. But in the, <laughs> yeah, people aren't going to check. No, no, no. Three hundred percent. But in the research I'm doing at the moment, you know, in the research I'm doing at the moment, we ask kids a question. You know, do you think it's likely that you're going to stay in Wales when mm. you're older? And you know, basically, the majority particularly the older students, the majority will say, no, I'm not going to stay in Wales. Yeah. And they don't want to stay in Wales because, as you said, Polly, there's this assumption that, mm-hmm. you know, England is better, there's more yeah. opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, but also this, interesting you said this, like it's an embarrassment, you know, like uh, Welsh universities are a shit, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah. And imposter syndrome, you said, when it's, it is basically a concept of not feeling like you belong somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't deserve to be here or anything like yeah. that. And you said that at Oxford they basically said, oh, you know, you're smart enough. Mm. Um, and there's this assumption, isn't it, that people think that it's about you not having confidence in your own academic ability, but you said yeah. it it wasn't that at all. You said mm-hmm. it was, you didn't think they were smart, anyone was smarter than you, you just, they were so confident. You said, by God, their yeah. confidence. You said, even when their ideas were unremarkable, the way <laughs> in which they carried themselves, their extensive vocabularies and their general sense of ease would make them appear impressive to any outsider. Yeah. And one of the greatest qualities afforded by a private school on its pupils is not education, but confidence. And that goes mm-hmm. you know, exactly, I'll just nail it. You don't have to read Bourdieu because you can just read. Yeah. It's just that. I mean, it's, the <laughs> hidden, it's the hidden curriculum. It's, yeah. it's not about your grades. It's about mm-hmm. what they call it, your comportment, how you carry yourself, you know, yeah. um, your confidence, you know, not wavering in front of a group of people. But also, mm-hmm. as you said, I mean, you look at you know, part of political class and what's happening in Brexit. A confidence in their ideas, even when they're just chatting absolute rubbish. Basically, oh, yeah. it's, it's a belief oh, yeah. that it's a it's a it's a it's about feeling that you belong. It's about feeling well. I'm in charge. If, um, mm-hmm. Have you heard of the Dunning Kruger effect? No. So basically, um, the less you know about the su- a subject or a certain thing, is the more you assume you know. 
So if you're really well read on a certain subject, you can kind of place yourself oh, no within it a bit better, oh, so okay. you can understand where you sit in yeah. it. So you'd have, that's why you get like you know people who just kind of underplay either their intelligence or ability because mm-hmm. they put themselves in a field that they can actually kind of measure themselves against quite more accurately than somebody who'd just be like, oh, I'm just, know loads about yeah, it. Yeah, I just mm. know loads about it. Mm. So in terms of how we, you know, it's how, you know how do we. Oh yeah, I should also say this as well. You, you, this is a remarkable statistic. You said every prime minister since 1955, except for three, has studied at Oxford. Yeah, yeah. You said yeah. there's a golden triangle of Oxford, Cambridge, and the elite London universities. Illustrate a fact of British life: the power has been, and seemingly will be for many years to come, isolated to a small, extremely powerful socio-economic group, privately educated, white, confident from London or the home counties, and are those most likely to take the most influential positions in our society, MPs, bankers, business leaders, and owners. Mm-hmm. You said it's a world tightly sh- close to the Welsh and the Scottish and the Irish too. It is closed, but the other, how you get it, if you're Welsh, would be to sort of basically jettison any sense of yourself or Welshness yeah. and experience a really traumatic dislocation, which is what education mm. research shows you. People that thrive in these environments are the ones with the ability to just go, okay, well, I'm going to be this now. Yeah. And you sort of throw yourself into it and embrace it. And For more on that, check out our George Thomas episode. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then you say, you know, this is what I think is fascinating, and we'll hopefully do more on this. How do the Welsh gain access? And you say the answer is they shouldn't seek to. Devolved higher education in Wales should present us with an opportunity to forego the elitism snobbery which hounds the intelligentsia of the British state, an opportunity to start fresh and conduct and construct our own measures of what constitutes a great education. At this point, I was just like, yeah, it's like clapping wildly. <laughs> but, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, but unfortunately, despite the sort of the rhetoric of the Welsh government and they're always going about widening access mm-hmm. things like that you still have things like the Saren group so the Saren group is basically an arm's length I don't know if it's like a charity it was set up by Paul Murphy when he was the Secretary of State uh, for Wales I believe the Saren group is basically it's like a network uh, which facilitates the best and brightest and it basically what it is it just encourages bright kids in Wales essentially to go to Oxbridge um, and it'll be in like a, a sort of regional consortia and it picks out the smartest kids, the smartest sixth formers, and it encourages them to go to their partner universities, which often happen to be in England. And this is a time we should say, talking about the state of Welsh higher education, there is a brain drain. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's been a report this year that by the Resolution Foundation, which uh, says that between 2013 and 2016, Wales attracted... 23,807 graduates but lost 44,335 um, and 40.6% of the ones that stayed are in non-graduate jobs so basically Wales' graduates are basically leaving to go to England um, and that's not really the way we want to go and so I've got some further stats so this is from the Higher Education Statistics Agency back on our stats game by the way we are I hate it. <laughs> um, you should just assume everything we say is right. We should yeah. have to back it up to you. Um, we don't owe you anything. But, okay, so, for example, um, in England, there are 28,730 Welsh students. You know, so 7.7% of all UK domicile students in England are Welsh. But what's interesting is that 96% of all the UK domicile students in England are from England. In Wales, there are... 106,480 UK domicile students, um, of which 35% are from England and 67,395 are from Wales. So only 63% of UK domicile students are Welsh. So, you know, 94% of, 96% of 
English students go to universities in England, where 63% of Welsh, you know, domiciled students go to university in Wales. Mm-hmm. Contrast that to Scotland, 84% of Scottish students go to Scottish universities. In Northern Ireland, 94% of Northern Irish students go to Northern Irish universities. So the pattern emerges. You know, Wales has, by a huge margin, really, has the smaller percentage of national students that go to their own universities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, more Welsh students go to England to university than Scottish students go to England and Northern Irish uh, students, you know, Wales import students from England as well. This backs up basically your, your essential point, the article, Polly, which is, you know, Welsh students don't study in Wales. And there are concrete reasons for this, for example, like there's no medical school in North Wales. So, you know, it's easy for people to go to Manchester. Um, there's no veterinary school in Wales, as far as I'm aware. No. So if you want to do veterinary studies or veterinary science or whatever, you have to go mm-hmm. to England, um, which is, again, something that the Welsh government could just be sorting out. But the point is there's a cultural thing, isn't it, of people, yeah. and it is backed up by statistics of people mm-hmm. just, you know, people go to English universities. And and we can tell from those statistics that it is, it's it's an aberration within the UK. It's not usual. Yeah. Like, so... You know, you could say, oh, well, Wales is close to England. And that's mm. true, there is a porous border, and it's a huge border. Mm. But, you know, 94% of Northern Irish students stay in Northern Ireland. You know, 84% of Scottish students stay in Scotland. And that has to be, at least in part, because of a, a sense of prestige. And I sense that, you know, you don't have to leave Northern Ireland, you don't have to leave Scotland um, to get sort of opportunities. So how do we build this new higher education system in Wales, and what would it look like? I mean, the first thing would be that it would be non-elitist. Mm. Surely that would be, you know, given that Wales is always markets itself, or the Welsh Labour government always market Wales as this social democratic, Wink. egalitarian, <laughs> what the, you yeah. know, the policy documents call it, you know, the learning country. Yeah. So surely one of the things we'd focus on would be getting, you know, basically more working class people into university and mm-hmm. uh, widening participation. But, I mean, I've, I don't know if I should bother reading out um, all the other statistics, but, you know, Chris Taylor and Gareth Rees in Wizard at Cardiff University have been looking into this and basically there aren't many working class kids in university in Wales you know widen, mm. widening participation is isn't really great you know we're not doing mm. particularly well but what they have found is that university depends on school so yeah. you know so um, a lot of it is about the culture of the school you know basically okay so Chris Taylor and Gareth Reese have been looking at you know patterns of widening participation in Wales you know so you'd think given that you know we've been trying the fees aren't, you know, fees aren't as high, things like that. Mm. The, you know, some barriers have been removed. So how are we doing? You know, yeah, they basically found that the patterns of inequality and access, you know, are broadly similar to, similar to England. You know, so despite the differences in policy approaches, you know, and students who are eligible for free school meals in Wales are much less likely to go to university. Although interestingly, you know, black and ethnic minority pupils were far more likely to enrol in higher education than. Mm-hmm. Uh, white counterparts, which is sort of, sort of progressive, and they basically recommended that the Welsh government introduce a national strategic framework for widening access to higher education. And one of the interesting things about going to university and retention is, I mean, some people have argued that, especially staying in higher education, doesn't have much to do with fees. So you know, Chris Taylor did a study back in 2002, and he basically found that you know those that dropped out, not many of them stated it had anything to do with financial worries, but it probably was stuff to do with yeah. cultural issues Mm -hmm. so i mean there's clearly a lot of work to be done but i was wondering probably if you know what based on your experiences in swansea you know Mm -hmm. what ideas would you have you know for for widening not just widening participation but Mm -hmm. you know a future welsh higher education system yeah 
solve, solve, solve the problem <laughs> for it. It's quite a yeah. big question. In um, one minute or less. Okay. Um, I guess one of the benefits... No, take your time. Yeah, yeah. One of the benefits of uh, the situation being so shit now is that it's kind of like blank page. You know, we kind of work it from the ground up. I think, actually, in the article, there was an editorial change that I kind of didn't pick up on when they asked me to look over it. And uh, so one of my solutions was firstly by pushing for greater devolution of higher education. That was something that was in the article. I didn't actually write that originally. Um, that was the editor. And I'm in two minds about whether or not devolution would have an impact. I think just because I'm in two minds about devolution anyway, I think <laughs> <laughs> that's probably another topic. Uh, I should point out, Polly is in Plaid Cymru. But yes, uh, so I think, I mean, what I wrote is challenging rather than pandering to traditional models of what excellence is. I think that feeds all the way from top down, bottom up. Um, so as a student who is, you know, I've had the benefits of growing up in a middle class household with quite a lot of social, cultural capital, whatever you want to call it, um, I can read academic journals and articles and all the rest of it. I'm struggling sometimes, but also being acutely aware of the fact that what I'm reading doesn't need to be as put in as complex terms as it is. And that applies to, you know, academic, actual learning, but also just application processes. I think one way of tackling things is that Welsh schools themselves, Welsh comprehensives, also Welsh private schools, they will take talks in from Oxford, Cambridge, they'll invite them in to talk to their kids tell them, you know, why Oxford Cambridge is great, dispel some myths. Welsh schools should be inviting academics from Cardiff to their schools and Swansea and Aberystwyth, Bangor, you know, and they should be emphasising the fact that Aberystwyth is unique for its political culture, you know, that, I've, you know, it's completely different from any university I've ever come across. And, you know, Swansea should be famous for you know, it's engineering department. The guy that invented the Large Hadron Collider that led the project that built that studied at Swansea. It's not something we learn about, you know, and just emphasising the strong points of our universities to Welsh students themselves is going to be a first step. But then in terms of actual political legislation, you know, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I don't know if I have all the answers. Well, here's a thorny subject. That yeah. I, I mean, I, you may have started uni before, like the Diamond Review and the fee change things came up, but yeah, how is the fee situation? I mean, because I know that mm-hmm. previously what happened in Wales, I think it was after 2004, Welsh universities could charge up to £9,000, but the Welsh government would basically cover mm-hmm. everything up to, up to 3900 That's now been replaced by the Diamond Review, which is looking at living costs rather than fees because they thought the fees were basically not the main thing to look at and, mm. and I guess one of the progressive elements of the Diamond Review is that it's going to be means tested mm-hmm. how do you find it I mean do, do people struggle what do you adjust I mean because mm-hmm. I mean it's interesting I hear people talk about oh you know student fees are amazing but then like I you know I get reminded like I got a letter the other day and it was like you have paid off this amount you now owe nine thousand pounds yeah. and <laughs> yeah. you'll never get you'll never convince me I'm sorry that me paying off a student debt for the rest of my life mm. when I'm already paying shitloads of tax and I'm broke. Mm. It's progressive, I'm sure. I mean, I'm, I don't see how you're ever going to sell that as being a, a... I mean, I guess you can say, well, I can afford it, but it also really sucks because mm. mm. it carries... I mean, it just adds it on to the other debt that you have. 
Mm. But how is it now? Because, you know, it's meant to be, you know, Wales Mm -hmm. is meant to be a progressive fee regime compared to England. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, English students that I talk to who don't have that uh, kind of handout from the Welsh government, they do struggle more, but Mm. also they do tend to come from all three areas. So it kind of evens out. I know that um, myself personally, you know, I have to hold down a part-time job at uni on top of voluntary work and writing and all that kind of thing. And that's very difficult. But in terms of tuition fees, there's constantly been this kind of debate of, well, yeah, well, we need to top up tuition fees because we need the, actually the maintenance grant is more important to people who are currently in education. So then there's this constant kind of trying to balance on the edge of the knife thing of, you know, is it more important to help students through university, but then kind of laying them down with debt for the rest of their life? Mm. Or the other way around, where students have three or four years of, you know, abject poverty. Um, yeah, but again, I think the problem to in To prepare my them head, for what's going to come. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. But we've just seen, I mean, the, the statistics <coughs> yeah. have just said that in the Resolution Foundation report that, you know, over 40% of the graduates of stay in Wales, you know, don't have graduate jobs. So yeah. the graduate premium, you know, the, the benefits of going to university is all the sold. You're going to get a better job. Mm. You're going to make more money over the rest of yeah. your life. And at the moment, you can't, you can't look kids in the, in the eye and say yeah. you are going to get a, a better job because of this, because a lot of the, it'll be, you know, a lot of people will get work in the, I guess, the sort of white collar working class, you know, mm-hmm. working admiral, which is what most people do, or, you know, call centres, glorified call centres. When people talk about fees, it's important to remember that, you know, that pe- people aren't going to be doctors and, yeah. you know, have these really mm. amazing jobs. that are made, oh, yeah. you know, I'm doing an arts, arts degree, like, <laughs> you didn't have to tell me. You're screwed, Polly, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I am, I'm doomed. When you're talking about fees, perhaps we're, talk- we're focusing on the wrong, the wrong point, like the wrong uh, period, because, you know, as you said earlier, there are people who are very capable and could have gone to university, but mm-hmm. because they don't think it's for them, they just don't go, so we need to be... <coughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Nate, talk us about your... Well, we, we haven't asked you, like, um, why didn't you admit to this terrible, dark secret, Nathan? Well, all right, <laughs> I didn't go to university, because oh basically... God. Yeah, I know. So, I guess I could say... My, my sister went to university, you know, she got master's, but I didn't. And like, even now, I feel like I can't go, because I don't have, like, the kind of grades or academic ability to and I, this is someone who's just recently turned 30 pretty much and like I still have this idea that you know university is something that isn't for me mm-hmm. I did do a foundation year in art and illustration and then I did go to Swansea Met but when I realized it was going nowhere I dropped out and then did nothing until now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for about a decade but so, I mean that's too because I, I was just as, as you're speaking now and like I wish I like you know got into all this years and years and years ago so I could have gone and got like a proper education but then at the same time you know there's the kind of flip side of it costs loads for stuff you can read online pretty mm-hmm. much yeah so like goodwill hunting yeah it's kind yeah. of a tempting option isn't it pretty much and so yeah. just access the reading lists yeah online cause you yeah well I was gonna be like uh, yeah I'm gonna yeah. get asked Dai Moon to t- tell me like it's just give me his course reading list pretty much and mm. then I'm, I, I am actually, I will put cards on, my table, on the table right now. I am secretly hoping that this podcast leads me to get an honorary degree. Oh, yeah. So I should yeah. get You're one. Doing it. And then, yeah, do it. And then uh, I don't have to put in any of the work or pay any of the money. That would be pretty mm-hmm. good. That would be. So if anyone mm-hmm. out there. Playing the long game, man. <laughs> yeah, wants to make that actually happen, I would be very appreciative. Okay. Um, well, that's the new, our new campaign. That is mm-hmm. our new campaign. That's what this has all been about. Yeah. It? yeah, it is. But, you know, but in school, did you. Were you sort of encouraged to, you know, 
my dad basically told me as soon as I didn't get any good grades, I'd, I'd say I was an average student in a sense, didn't pay attention, but I was constantly told maybe you should try looking into doing something like plumbing, which as, as a 15 or 16 year old, you, you kind of, you internalize quite a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't a sob story or anything, no, but like, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of just, I, yeah. So I guess in terms of like, um, kind of shown a, a wide array of because uh, you come from like uh, Dan you said your dad was very working class your mum was very middle class and cut you... that like <laughs> <laughs> I come from a learned family of doctors yeah <laughs> no but I mean it's it, it, it's like what Polly said I mean it, we have expectations on us as individuals and you know um, and these aren't really taken account of when doing the university and, and one of the ironies I think about the Welsh education system in that preparing working class kids um, or state school kids to go to Oxbridge and even to go to England, to go to Russell Group Universities, is encouraging a lot of people uh, to undergo a really intense emotional upheaval, leaving their families, leaving their friends, leaving their mm -hmm. communities, going to somewhere where they, um, they might not fit in, they might not have a good time, and they might not even get a, a good job at the end of. And the irony is the schools because the schools themselves don't really understand the cultural aspect of all this. They focus on academics, you know. Yeah. You know, so it's the smartest kids, you've got to watch. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. But if they really wanted to, I mean, obviously we're going to tear this whole system down, but, you know, so this is all hypothetical. But Possibly yeah, yeah. by force. But if they yes. were going to sort of take the, if they are going to take the system as it is, they should be basically teaching those kids, you know, how to stand up in front of the class and talk and mm -hmm. um, have confidence in their, in their ability and things like that because those are the that's the hidden curriculum that private schools basically inculcate in yeah. in children and that's the main advantage they have is they're sort of and people say oh you're more well they're more well-rounded mm. um where what it really means is confidence can in we yourself. uh shoe and i think his name's uh i don't know his name horton cooley do you know that i do not um so he basically say like you know uh, society acts as a mirror to yourself Mm -hmm. So as soon as, you know, your immediate, like, kind of group um, almost, like, reflects yourself back to you and then you act appropriately. So, you know, you can kind of apply it to celebrities and that's why they go absolutely insane because all of a sudden, like, people are telling them they're amazing and great. You become that person that isn't you, really. I mean, I guess that's a kind of, like... That's like us, isn't it? Goffman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, on, on this, we're, like, these high-flying people, but in reality... We, <laughs> So we kind of serve our jobs and just want to die. I mean, the other, the other thing about, I mean, about, I mean, we're talking about class and education and things like that and, and how we can maybe transform the Welsh higher education system and how you can sort of widen access. There is, you know, there's a book called uh, Learning to Labour by a guy called uh, Paul Willis. And what are you talking about? <laughs> but what he basically says is that working class men in particular, because all this stuff, I mean, if you ever get around to reading it, everyone is just... It's almost like a fetish for white working class boys. You know, yeah. it's just all the research is about that. None of it is about girls. None of it is about, you know, uh, working class people of colour or anything like that. And that's probably because all the researchers are white yeah. working class researchers trying to come to terms with their own <laughs> middle yeah. class backgrounds. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, or trying to come to terms with their own, yeah. like, you know, how they, the trauma they probably experience at university and see if other people are doing the same. But mm -hmm. what he basically said was that he called it learning to labour because he said that working class boys internalise the culture of their sort of locality and and class, which is this really macho masculine culture. So the values of the school are, you know, order, discipline, you know, aspiration in a narrow sort of go to university, whereas the values of these boys were 
that they'd learn from their dads and they'd learn in their area would be basically who's the best with women, who's the best, Be- at best listener, you mean? Who, yeah, <laughs> no. who's the best at fighting? And so, what the schools didn't understand was that these boys' rejection of th- sort of authority in the school mm. was actually a rational thing because those boys are working to, within their own hierarchy yeah. and their own aspirations, which involved mm. being the toughest lad, you know, being the coolest kid, being the kindest to women, being, yeah, being the most respectful, <laughs> yeah, being the most respectful, and the most, yeah. like yeah. the b- best ally, yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, so, so being the best it's something yeah. that I think this is something that, you know, when we look at because people don't I mean aspirations are, is a horrible word mm-hmm. because aspiration always tends to mean stop being you, you know, yeah. and yeah. or, you know, leave it be the, the best con- you. in the context of your essay, Polly mm-hmm. basically means leave Wales behind, you yeah. leave your community behind, aspire to something else. But, you know, there is, I think, something there in that because well, Wales is a parochial country in many ways, like people want to stay in. Some people want to stay in and be the, the big cheese of their local yeah. area. Mm-hmm. Um, like us. Yeah, like us. <laughs> and in some in some ways, education can be sort of seen as, you know, it's it's not it's not cool basically, or it's yeah. not it, it's a, a formal education is seen as incompatible with what you mm-hmm. want to be at that stage in life, which is, you know, basically the, the top dog of your area, things like that. So mm-hmm. okay, so I think we've come to the end of this really illuminating episode. And hopefully, you know, Polly, you'll become a regular guest and we will yeah. pick your brains and... Um, Get you a t-shirt. Oh, yeah. It, Love that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> as ever, as, as is custom, is there anyone, Polly, you'd like to give a shout out to? Uh, Got to give a shout out to Dan Roberts. Uh, Dan Boy. Yeah. Also, my fa- oh, family. Yeah. Yeah. Nice basic one there. <laughs> um, I think also I'm going to have to say hi to the Plyley Your family crew. basic. I've been... <laughs> I've been non, almost non-partisan up until this point, but I'm going mm. to say hi to the Plyde Bank lot. So uh, yeah, I think that's everything. That's good. Do you want you do want to start a beef with anyone or just Ooh, next um, time? Actually, yeah, Jack of the North. <laughs> oh, I don't nice. like you. Stay away from me. Okay, beef yeah. started. There nice. we are. Come at uh, me. Nathan, any beefs? Any or? beefs? <laughs> I do have a few, but they're in work, so I want to kind of leave them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so shout out to Kurt Russell as normal. Can't think of anything else. Chocolate, um, chocolate cookie biscuits. <laughs> Good uh, sleep. I like yeah. Dan. How about you? Uh, shout outs to. Oh, uh, shout out to my sister who's going to get married. Aww. Yeah, shout outs to my uh, mum. His birthday yesterday. Love you, mum. Um, and love you, Dan's mum. Um, <laughs> and to my family and to my little nieces. Um, but also, that's fine. Okay, so thanks very much for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Here comes my main man, Maddie. Time for a haircut, Maddie, though. Don't make me give it to you. You're the man, Professor. You're the man if you stay in school, JJ. All right. All right, you. Lisa, how's the GPA? Keep it up, 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 up. Professor. Hey, there's my man. Oh, time out, son. Hang on, son. Uh, did you forget something here? Sorry? This orange, it belonged to you? Uh, no. Looks pretty good, not too peeled, pretty intact here. You want it? No, thanks. I'm cool, Professor. You're cool. Well, when you're cool, you're cool. Well, hey, D, how's it going? <laughs> Teacher's lounge. Pretty sweet. How'd you swing that? I'm a teacher now, Charlie. Subbing for Dr. Myers while he gets his hip fixed. Look at us with our new careers, huh? How about that? Well, yours is kind of the same, you know, because you've always sort of been a janitor. Nah, but I'm thriving here. I'll uh-huh. tell you what. Uh-huh. Yeah, did you get that orange out of the garbage? Yeah, sure did. Can you believe that? Someone threw this away? Perfectly good orange? You know, they were digging at it a little bit and must have given up, but... <laughs> Don't eat trash, Charlie. I'll eat what I want to eat.